And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Here we go. 18 days without an incident here at the bunker. We did have to restart the count a while back. Welcome, everybody, and thank you for joining us. My name is Jason Hunt. I am the editor here at Sci-Fi For Me. 32 years in media, which means I should know a few things about a few things. And I don't know everything, but I know everything else. And I should know enough to know better, but I'm still here. And it is good to be here. It is Tuesday, March 16th. And we are live on YouTube, Twitch, and Facebook. And we're trying to get our Twitch channel up to 100 followers. We just recently reactivated it. So we're in a rebuilding phase over there. So if you have a Twitch account, if you're interested in following us over there, we're going to start our watch parties at some point here fairly soon. We want to get our numbers up first. So that's going on. We are also uh, open to chat and comments if you are here with us live. If you're not live with us, that's okay too. You can still leave a comment. And as always, you can send us an email live from the bunker at sci-fi-for-me.com. Give us topic suggestions. Give us guest suggestions. Let us know about things that are going on that we should know about. If you prefer to have your content in a podcast, we've got that covered. iHeartRadio, Pocket Cast, Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Double Twist, uh, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Listen Notes. All of those places where you can find this show as well as the H2O podcast. Myself and Mr. Harvey. And speaking of which, last night we talked about the future of Star Trek. We also looked a little bit of the past of Star Trek. Uh, but we talked about Star Trek last night. Next Monday we will be doing reaction and review and analysis of the Snyder Cut. So all of that's going on. We're on all the socials if you want to find us over there. And we do have a newsletter you can sign up for over at scififorme.com. Or you can also just, uh, you know, click the link in the show notes. Find us that way. So there we are. All of the different ways that you can find us. Just don't serve us papers. Right? So today we've got a little bit of a different, uh, a different thing happening because this was not too terribly expected. Oh, I forgot to mention uh, something. Something that we talked about last night. An idea came up during the H two O podcast, and I personally think that it is a somewhat brilliant idea, <clears throat> even though I did have it myself. We were talking about the various different... How, I don't even know, Mrs. Boss, how that came up. But we were talking about various different different channels that we could have. The different Sci-Fi For Me channels. And uh, it came up, we could do Sci-Fi For Me Max for the really intense stuff. And we could do Sci-Fi For Me After Dark for, you know, that programming. And then I had this really brilliant idea that the After Dark programming would all be scrambled like back in the in the old days of pay-per-view. So we may try to do something with that. That was such a funny idea that cannot be left alone. So we'll be doing that. Tonight we've got a brand new Salacious Crumbs with uh, the latest Star Wars news. Now, today, I say we got a little bit of a different thing. Uh, yesterday afternoon, we had the opportunity to interview Jameson Lacasio. He is the director of the new film that's just out. It's called No Fear, spelled K-N-O-W, for those of you who are listening to this show. And it is an interesting, unique take on the haunted house boogeyman type of story. And as we were doing this, 
uh, yesterday, our new contributor, Christopher Hoffman, conducting the interview. And originally the idea here, maybe we do 15, 20 minutes, and we got an hour out of it. It was a very good conversation. Christopher did a good job. That being, I believe, his first interview that he's ever done, at least recorded on camera. So uh, with everyone's uh, with everyone's agreement, and we said, hey, let's just throw this in. So for the next hour, we will have a conversation between Chris Hoffman and our guest, Mr. Jameson Locasio. So here we go. Uh, good afternoon. How are you? Great. Thanks so much for having me on. I, I appreciate it. And I appreciate it. And um, we're, we're speaking to Jameson uh, Locasio, and that, and he's the uh, writer, director, editor of uh, No Fear, a, a really, really innovative uh, uh, indie horror movie, and that um, that's uh, very, very enjoyable. Um, Thank you so much. Uh, my pleasure. Um, I was just wondering if you. Uh, give us a, a brief uh, synopsis of No Fear uh, before we get started, please. Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you so much for that. Um, basically, it's about a family who realizes there's some sort of entity in their house, which is all sort of standard horror fare. But the part that makes No Fear fun, or I guess unique, is basically they realize that in order to fight it, they have to sort of divide these different abilities amongst the three of them. One of them will be able to see the demon. One of them will be able to hear the demon. And one of them will be able to speak to it using this special ritual. So that's what makes it unique and what makes No Fear different and fun. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I, I found the premise very, very intriguing. And the fact that the actors were like uh, each one communicated or interpreted how they experienced uh, the demonic entity in a different way. Um, and they weren't connected to one another. So everything. So you have this uh, idea of like isolation between yeah. them and um the ability to their the character's uh ability to actually interpret how they were experiencing the demon wasn't necessarily communicated to the other characters and that yeah. uh, um it it they tried to but um in the midst of experiencing that uh that fear and and trying to process that um the teamwork kind of fell away you know sometimes and that for that um and now was 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 communication um like a uh was communication uh or the lack of thereof was that a uh focal point that you try to concentrate on uh during the the writing of the movie um and I'm so sorry for my dog going on in the background right now. I'm going to try to mute in between me speaking. Um, you know, everybody's no working from home. Uh, yeah, it was it was an important point. I, actually, I like that you bring up the isolation because I think that's an important part of what makes it so scary. And I can certainly come up. I can certainly talk about the you know the genesis of the idea and how we got to it. You know, at some point with you. Uh, but yeah, communication was key. And I think ultimately, what makes it interesting is it's about a family that's not communicating. Um, and actually in the beginning of the movie, they're sort of speaking about that. And then it becomes this heightened thing, which is, you know, not only, you know, maybe if we all just talked, it would be, uh, we would have a closer family, but on top of that, it becomes, well, if we don't talk, we might die. <laughs> so oh, yes. that's actually, you know, it's, it's fun. And I, I appreciate that you brought up about isolation too. Yeah. I think that's 100% on the money. And, um, I really, uh, enjoyed, uh, David Allen Bash's, uh, portrayal of Donald. Um, because it, it's such a refreshing take on the skeptical husband sort of trope. Um, when I was watching the film, um, I could really see that he genuinely like cared and was concerned about Wendy. And he wasn't, you know, necessarily just like writing her off um, like so many other characters in that type of movie have uh, done up until like, you know, the very end where they're actually like, getting attacked by the the monster or or a creature or something like that and um i really enjoyed that take on uh on um 
that type of character. Um, was that something that you like discussed with 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 David, or was it like written into the script, or a combination of both? Or well, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing with David. David's such a talented guy, and he came in and read for us the pale blue dot speech that he that he gives to Charlie, and that was really the thing that. And there's a funny story even behind that and how that wound up in the script. Um, uh, but yeah, w- basically we wanted Donald to be very uh, uh, dorky. And we liked the idea of having him be somebody who was kind of a nerd. And, and you know, we, we didn't really want him to be a parental figure uh, in, in, in a hard sort of uh, uh, way in the sense that he had to be, you know, demanding or everybody stop moving right now. And, and we thought that would be the wrong vibe for the movie. We like the point of, you know, it's kind of a, a mixture of uh, magic and, and science, you know, and the hardest thing about Donald, you know, coming to terms with this is that he's looking at everything scientifically. Um, but, you know, what I what I thought was important to track with him throughout the movie is, you know, he doesn't believe any of this. But there's a point where, you know, you really you really have to just say, well, I don't know what's going on. So let me just go along for the ride. And we wanted to sort of get through that. You know, a lot, actually, in a lot of uh, very, I guess, generous reviews, people have said that, you know, he he goes right into it, which is great. I mean, we didn't even think about that. I think what we were more focused on was, you know, well, if things start happening, he has no choice. And I think we were coming at it more from a point of, you know, this guy believes in science and, and he doesn't believe in magic. And it's not that he would hate something like this and try to stop everyone. It's just that it's not in his wheelhouse. It's not who he is. So he's coming at it more from an analytical point or something else. And I think that made the character easier, you know, for, for, for David Allen Bache to portray. He wasn't against everything. It just wasn't part of his DNA. Oh, uh, certain is you can really see that in his portrayal um, because like as, as Wendy is like descending in, in, into the possession. Um, you can see that he is really, he really cares for her and he loves her. He just really doesn't know how to like comprehend what's going on. Yeah. Um, but he's not going to like throw that aside. But uh, yeah, as I, I mentioned, like so many other, you know, characters of, of that type have. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I really found that refreshing and I really appreciated that. Um, I, I know I started talking about like the lack of communication and, 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 and uh, David's portrayal of Donald. Um, but I, I, I guess uh, we can like kind of circle back to um, the, the origins of, of No Fear. Um, what uh, inspired you to come up with the, with the idea? Um, I understand that you uh, worked on it with a, uh, Adam Ambrosio, uh, your producer. Yeah, um, it's a great story, and it's actually kind of a funny story. And I always relate it to the kids from Evil Dead, not because I believe our movies like Evil Dead, because those guys are amazing, but but I always relate it to uh, uh, the fact that we're all just, you know, we're friends. And so mm-hmm. what happened was uh, um, we went to go see a horror movie together. I probably shouldn't say which horror movie it was. We saw it in theaters, myself and my other, my, our other good friend, uh, Matt. Uh, shout out to him. But basically, we didn't respond to it. And I turned to Adam and I, don't, I was not really exposed to horror in my life at all. No particular reason other than, you know, I just didn't really grow up on it. And I turned to him and said, you know, I, I don't, I think if this is where horror is going, I, I, I wouldn't want to have any part of it, which was like, I maybe a strange stance to take, but I felt very strongly about it. I'm like, I'm not going to do a horror movie. I'm just not going to do it. So he was dismayed by that. And he said, you know what, well, I, I'm going to just sit you down and show you like everything that I love about horror films and it was really like an extraordinary experience because he sat me down, he showed me Halloween, he showed me uh, Evil Dead, he showed me Hellraiser and we watched probably somewhere between 150 to 300 movies. Um, So he really taught me the genre, but more than that, I think he had me see it through a film lovers or horror lovers eyes. And so I really started to love horror movies and we just sat there and I just came, became obsessed with it and to the point that I have like Evil Dead drawings on my wall now and all sorts of crazy stuff. And we just kind of tracked, you know, what, you know, we wanted to do a horror movie then, you know, it was like, you know, let's do one, but let's come, let's come from a pure place and let's try to have something that's high concept, I guess you'd say, or something that's interesting that we can lend to the genre. Mm-hmm. So um, we kind of based it on a little bit of Middle Eastern uh, religion. That's kind of was the basis of it. 
And then it built from there. You know, we used some different texts and resources. And then we kind of actually, I think he even a conversation, we were looking for some way to sort of play a game with the audience in a way that was not obtrusive, but could define it as being something different. Um, and I think he was the one that just said, you know, what about see no evil, hear no evil, you know, speak no evil. And so that became, you know what, let's try to attack that, you know, and make it the best story it can be based on that plot line and also within the scope of our budget. But we never really think about that. We just do what we, we feel, I guess, um, and then we let the rest play out. So, yeah, he was, you know, uh, from the ground up. That's how we built the script. We, you know, every time we wanted to write, we got together, we outlined it together. We did everything together. He's a great producer because he really brought me not only to love horror films, um, but to want to make one. And and I think he guided it really great. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, he uh, he was also the composer as well, correct? Yeah, his music is incredible. And I thank you for touching on that, I should also say. His music, I always, it's actually the sound of all of my films right now. I mean, or, or I should say always has been. So it's a great composer uh, director relationship in that sense. So he has a great uh, ear for music and also he brings things to the table that I would have never considered. Oh, yes, yes. Now, uh, coming from a, uh, well, I mean, now you're, you're a horror fan, but, but at the genesis of No Fear, you weren't necessarily like a uh, well-versed in horror mm -hmm. um, coming from that standpoint, were there any other like uh, film uh, influences that you brought yeah. to no fear? Yeah. Um, 100%. Um, number one, I would say probably primary. And actually this is a horror because we did happen to see it in a movie theater and it was actually sort of a life changing experience because I noticed my own films and then also the response to this, but I saw the conjuring in theaters and that was huge mm -hmm. because people were so responsive to it. But I, yeah, I think that the influences are the things that I was always thinking about in the process. I, weirdly enough, I guess I could say is Lord of the Rings is a franchise I'm obsessed with. And I love Peter Jackson's, you know, especially really the fellowship and everything else. And so a lot of times I think about those in terms of color tone, but also how, how people deal, you know, how the, he dealt with the fantastical and made it feel real. And that stuff is, was huge. And even to the point that I probably had, I actually had conversations with my actors about, you know, how that, how they did that, you know, in some ways and sometimes. So, yeah, I always think about the Lord of the Rings. I mean, and I, I definitely come from more of a, uh, I mean, I, I like dramas and I come from more of that standpoint of trying to have scenes that are interesting for the actors and, and, and things like that. So that's probably more of my realm and, you know, working with the actors, those are the things that I really love. And I think it, it, you know, it, it was nice working with these guys and then having the horror elements also part of it. Mm -hmm. I, I can definitely see um, the, the, not only the strong performance, but also like a, a sense of like an ensemble uh, but between the cast. It, it, um, and sometimes you will see in uh, like movies similar to this or, you know, uh, uh, low budget um, horror movies. Um, it seems like the, the cast, just said hello to each other on the set before they, you know, uh, started their performances. Um, and, but, uh, Wendy and, uh, Donald, um, really seemed like they, they were a couple. And, and in fact, all of the, 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 the actors that you had, um, they, they seemed, it seemed very natural. It, it seemed, sort of like an indie drama, you know, at the very beginning of it. And then it slowly, you know, methodically uh, um, at a good pace of like went into the, the, the horror. Um, so we really got to feel for the characters. Um, and uh, that was something that, that I appreciated um, because um, of course um, now when, when you were communicating with the different actors um, about, um, I'll, I'll ask about uh, Amy Carlson and, and her portrayal in just a second. Um, but like towards the uh, middle and the end of the film where uh, the characters are like separated um, and each experiencing uh, the demonic entity in their own way. Um, how did you uh, translate that to the different different actors i mean what um for instance there's one character i, I don't want to uh 
spoil who it is, um, who can only hear the, the, the demonic entity. And um, now was that, did that character have reference to like the sound or was that something that, um, that was sort of like uh, the tennis ball on the, on the uh, broom handle sort of thing? That, uh, that's a great point. We definitely worked, um, yeah, with, uh, with Jack DeFalco, who does a great job as Charlie. Um, we really wanted a character who, who we actually, a lot of times we were obsessed with the fact of trying to have characters who seemed like they'd be totally good in a situation like this and then putting them in over their head because we felt that that would create a bigger distance for the audience to travel. You know, Jamie's the ghost hunter, you know, so if, if at any point during the movie, if she was in over her head, the audience would be like, well, if she doesn't have this, then we definitely don't. So, you know, that was a, that was a definitely an effort, you know, that was something we were aiming for, but yeah, with, um, with, uh, Mr. DeFalco, we were, we did give him the sound and we said, you know, this is what it's like, and this is what it feels like. Um, and you know, it's, you know, it's like a drill going into your head, that kind of thing. And he was able to capture that without, you know, without like extensive conversations. It was just, you know, this is the tone. Um, we also provided them all, actually, you know, there's something I forgot about. I mean, we talked about, but the, the, we also provided them all with their own, um, I'm sorry, really the two, the two young people, brother and sister, Charlie and Jamie, we gave them music that was, you know, like their characters. So they had a vibe and, and everything else and they had a look and they had a feeling and they had a personality that they also really just brought out. Um, but then uh, in terms of, you know, visuals, we had, a, we found a YouTube channel and we also used a lot of um, really Lovecraft, uh, you know, feelings and imagery and, and everything. And that was really Adam's idea. He said, you know, you should just look at Lovecraft. So I wound up reading like all of Lovecraft basically, but we gave um, Mallory Bechtel basically the imagery of Lovecraft in her mind. And she actually said, and I, I don't blame her, it was a little too much for her to really want to delve too deeply into it, which I get. It's it's unsettling, but I think in a lot of ways, you know, when you're just looking into a dark room, you know, Lovecraft, I think, unlocks something in the imagination that you've never quite seen before. And I do think that was helpful to her um, because of the type of stuff we were doing with the lighting and things like that. We had to get everybody on the same page. So the reference point for crew in a lot of ways was John Carpenter and in the Mouth of Madness, we talked a lot about the way that looked and executed that, which was also an idea that Adam had said, you know, let's try to tackle the lighting that's in this movie, what's happening here. So I had to reverse engineer it as a director and say, okay, I know what to do. Um, but then from the, from the cast standpoint, we gave them Lovecraft and we, we tried to give them as many reference points as possible. But a lot of these people are so good, even though they're a little new to the game, it was an easy, that was easy actually in some ways because of how talented they were and are. Oh. Oh yes, and and you were speaking of the uh, looking into the uh, the darkened room, um, and that uh, leads me into my my next uh, question uh, about uh, Amy Carlson's portrayal, and um, specifically the there's a, a scene where she's uh, sitting um, facing Donald, and um, she's like, "It's right behind you," yeah. <laughs> and and the camera pans over slowly to Donald, and and, and Donald looks over his shoulder and there's nothing, uh, you just see blackness. <laughs> and, and, and it's like in some movies, you would expect like a jump scare there or, or, or something or something like, you know, that or like a musical sting or, you know, something that kind of telegraphs, you know, to the audience that, um, oh, hey, you're supposed to be scared here. And, and, and there, necessarily wasn't i mean you know you you're you're left to your own devices as to like what exactly is is um a windy scene um because you know something's there yeah and, um but you have you get the point of view from um i i guess donald who can't comprehend it yeah. um or or at this point sort of not only can't comprehend it, but sort of like refuses to believe, you know, that there would be something there. Um, it, now, with with Amy's portrayal as Wendy, because we we see her slow descent into the possession. Um, was there a a particular type of like uh, 
direction that you gave her as to, I mean, I, I understand that you, uh, she had a lot to work with, with the, the script, but, um, because it is demonic possession is, is somewhat, you know, an esoteric sort of yeah. <laughs> thing. Um, how, how were you able to like, sort of like translate that to her? Um, because of the various like different parts that uh, parts of the possession that she goes through. Yeah. Well, you touched on two very interesting things uh, that we dealt with in this movie, which were very, very much creative challenges. I think in that moment for Donald, that was, an, that was an important moment for Donald um, uh, in, in that one scene you're discussing. And I think the reason why we didn't lean into, into anything there is because he's still sort of coming around to the idea. And he's for the first time imagining. So we kind of leave that dialogue segment and something I usually don't do as a director, but I felt that was the moment to do it. We, we sort of then go off the rails quite literally, you know, into his imagination and thinking about what could possibly be there for the first time. Um, so that was, you know, that was a fun moment and a great opportunity to be able to do something like that in, in, in this. But um, also with, with Amy, I, I think the thing that I had communicated to her, um, you know, a lot was that her character is going through something that's very physical. You know, I mean, she she had the subtext and she has everything naturally that she could bring as an actress. So those things you can't, you know, you can't give someone, they have that. Um, but what I did give her was the physical ailments of, you know, what's happening with her. And oftentimes I talk about it as a as a stomach sickness and and as a as a, as a nausea that's kind of just being brought on in waves. Um, and she, she 100% got that without, you know, any type of extensive even discussion, but there was another element to it too, which was a tricky balance, which was we trying to bring in also those moments of like, you know, hyper possession because they come in waves. Those mm -hmm. moments were tough. And a, a lot of times actually even Adam, Adam had a conversation with her about one of those very critical moments that happens in the movie because he saw it a certain way. And I agreed with him. Um, so that was even a conversation he had with her in terms of what he saw for that moment, which I thought was great. I'm, I'm happy when a producer can do that and heighten the moment in the movie is fantastic. And so I really, I really worked on, on the, you know, the, the highs and lows with her, which is a difficult balance with an audience, but, you know, also how sort of out of touch she starts to become after a while. And that balance of, you know, being sort of hyper aware in the moment, but also sort of just completely losing touch and, and balancing those things. And, and she does that so well, scene to scene that it feels not only, it actually feels consistent, like it's getting worse, but it also is very realistic and extremely unsettling. Oh yes, definitely. Uh, especially in, in the scene where we're introduced to uh, Nancy, uh, Mia uh, Davis's character. Um, yeah. And you, you can see how, uh, like, physically tired Amy is. Yeah. Uh, or, I mean, sorry, uh, Wendy, uh, the, the character of Wendy is. Um, and then that elicits more of, like, a natural response from Nancy. Yeah. Uh, and, and I really appreciate the fact that you actually took time with, with Nancy's character to, like, build her. Yeah, uh, to build her up because usually, if you have characters of this type that are kind of just like thrown into the situation, they're um, I'm, I'm going to use a, a, a Star Trek reference. Uh, they're usually kind of red shirts, you know. <laughs> yeah. And and, and um, but with Nancy, we really get like a, a sense of like, oh, hey, I I know this, I know this woman, and yeah. and I see how she fits in with the whole, you know family dynamic, you know, um, yeah. and, and I, I really, uh, I really appreciated that. And, um, I, I'm, I, I know I've been talking, uh, uh, quite a bit about like different performances and stuff like that. Um, but as I mentioned before, it, it, it in the beginning of the film, it, it felt like, you know, uh, um, one of those character pieces from like the seventies, you know, where, where it's, uh, you have these sort of like slice of life moments. Um, you, you mentioned, um, I, um, I believe, uh, you mentioned like the, the pale blue dot. Um, yeah. and, and that's, uh, 
that's a Sagan reference, Carl Sagan. And, and um, it's those little conversations that um, allow the characters to grow, you really don't necessarily see in this type of movie. And uh, it, it was just so refreshing because like once the actual horror starts, um, it, you really feel empathy for the characters. You, characters. you want them to, to get out of the situation that they're in. Um, and, and then sometimes you, uh, f- for me, I uh, kind of figuratively uh, sort of like shook my fist at the screen one time uh, for, uh, for uh, uh, Jamie's hubris. <laughs> yeah. And that I was just like, hey, um, yeah, I kind of forced you into this because <laughs> yeah. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that, um, and I also uh, appreciated the uh, the small details that you had. Um, for instance, um, in in the in the review, um, I mentioned the uh, the book, and uh, you were using insert shots, and you would see this fully illustrated book. But then, when you had like a wide shot, you could plainly see that the book itself was blank. Yeah, um, and and that really added to the whole world building for me as far as um, like, oh, wow, they can't, the other people cannot see what is in this book. You yeah. Know? And, and in fact, I think the only, the only thing that they could possibly see was the, the, the in, inner cover with a, tr- uh, with a triangle. Right. That's exactly um, right. And uh, that attention to detail was really, really refreshing. Um, now, I, I do remember reading that you and um, Adam illustrated the books. Yeah. And that, um, and you had mentioned earlier that there was a, a, a Middle Eastern religion that you had referenced. Or, yes. uh, uh, and actually not in the book, but that was the okay. basis of the idea. Um, uh, Zoroastrianism, uh, which I, I always say wrong, I think, but Basically, that was the Middle Eastern religion that basic, base, gave us the basis of the movie, which was a, which was an interesting concept that was really in there. We opened to a random page and put my foot, uh, not my foot, put my finger on something and said, "Wow, this is okay. This is weird." And it was about a loved one, you know. Basically, their body stays, but their soul is there, and it has to be guarded from like basically demons. And it was like, "Whoa, okay, well that." That sounds like every horror movie, but that actually got us thinking like about the basis for no fear. We have a woman, we have something where her family has to protect her. Um, you brought up a lot of great stuff. I'd like to address a, a number of them, but yeah, basically, um, you know, uh, we tried to hire um, someone to do the books and it just wound up becoming too complex. So all the, the, the problem, the problem with something like that in a movie is that it has to function on multiple levels. And with, with Peter Jackson's movies, especially, you see just how things, I mean, you know, based on Lord of the Rings, but there's, you know, in, in a lot of these great, you know, movies, um, you see how these things work on so many different levels, you know, and there was even discussions about how combat ready the book would be, because the problem was, is we tried to make it like the Necronomicon, but you know what, it wasn't combat ready, because you have to sit there and read five pages of it, you're not going to be able to fight a demon. So <laughs> that didn't make sense then. Um, you know, so those were the conversations we had and how we defined our book a certain way. Um, yeah. And also I appreciate, um, you know, some people, maybe more than just you, hopefully at some point, uh, I don't know who pick up on, you know, the book is blank, you know, in, in those types of wider shots. And, uh, that in itself was tricky with such a tight schedule, but the way that we pulled off a lot of that, and this is a fun, you know, nerdy thing to talk about is we actually had to make nine of those books. Wow. So every time Adam and I made nine books, I could not weather them to save my life. I don't know why. <laughs> my older brother was huge on Lord of the Rings, so he used to make props in like our backyard. So I learned a lot from that. And uh, I did all the drawings myself. But the thing I'm proud of, whether or not they're good or not, I guess is up to everybody. But, but the thing I am proud of is I actually, I, I hand painted each one of those. Because in my mind, I was like, you know what, that's what something like, Lord of the Rings would do. These would be hand painted. They would be crafted in the way that they were meant to be. So by the time they're seen on screen, they have that, um, you know, they have that, that credibility to them that they can just be shot and they have a weight to them and you, they feel like they're there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So yeah, you know, just like obsessively trying to get that stuff right, you know, because you you know, you love movies for a reason, you know, like I'm obsessed with Lord of the Rings, you know, and still watching those movies. And, And it's because I think there's a, there's such a, there's such a real element of them. Those things are real in my mind growing up, you know, and I think, I think, you know, growing up now in making movies, you start to realize, you know, like the reasons why, like, oh, this is why people care about this so much is because the people who made it cared about it and they took the time to think about it. And so we were just 100% trying to do that the whole time. And and, and I appreciate that. I'm, I'm also seeing sort of uh, references to, to other movies, but not necessarily um, like overt references. Um, for instance, in, in The Basement, um, the there's uh, like some manic and um down there and um i you know a horror a horror fan myself was like oh wait a second maybe that's an homage to tourist trap or you know like or one of the uh or, or dead silence or you know something like that one of the 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 uh killer mannequin movies um and um i i really like how you used this the scares are there, but you were using a lot of the less is more sort of yeah. uh, approach to um, not not only like showing the demon, but also like having everything kind of escalate. Um, and I love how that tied in with the fact that um, the characters really couldn't necessarily, you know, process everything in in total um unless they were you know succumb unless they had succumbed to the demon um and was were there any particular like films that um not necessarily that you referenced um like on screen but uh were any sort of like influences into that kind of you know I'm not going to show you the monster behind the door. You're going to have to, you know, imagine sort of uh, yeah technique. Yeah. A hundred percent. I think, you know, I, I can think of like four things that just like immediately come to my mind, but there was like, you know, there, it's no joke to say that hundreds of horror movies influenced this and other movies, but you know um, in terms of the, you know, direct influences, we, we actually named the characters after the actors who were in Halloween. So that was one thing that's really right up in, in the movie because we felt, I felt the debt to Halloween. I, I know Adam, you know, grew up on it, but there's also, you know, my, uh, the sequence that I was able to get in there as a director, which I was happy about was my, what I would call my rear window sequence, which is one of my favorite movies ever. But you know, there's, there's a sequence with, with a, there's a sequence with the staircase and I love Alfred Hitchcock. So I'll just say that that was like my homage to that. But yeah, I mean, there also in terms of, you know, showing less is more, I think, I think the thing that was, was great about this having not have made another horror film and really coming from it like you know from three thousand feet like trying to say like okay what what is this thing like what are we trying to do here um i think we wound up having very intense and good conversations about like what is horror and you know what is going to scare us and that was important because i think oftentimes you don't always go back to the drawing board and think about like okay well how are we going to build a scary thing the audience will respond to and we always went back to Lovecraft. I mean, I think 100% he, he kind of really said, you know, what is the most, what is the most, you know, frightening thing? What is, what is the, the greatest fear? And it's the fear of the unknown, you know, the things that we don't, that we don't know or can't quantify. And that's in, that's really at the, in the core of every one of his works really is that it's so unknowable that if you even knew it, you would just lose your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that's really the basis of so many things and that, you know, and, and Hitchcock and, Hitchcock and Lovecraft are actually really the basis for a lot of the John Carpenter work that also directly influenced this. So it's like when you see those things in, a, in, in almost the trifecta of its own, you know, those things then really poured into no fear in, in terms of, you know, how Carpenter used them. And again, I always bring up uh, in the mouth of madness, but that's a great, a great example of, you know, we don't really know the total scope, um, mm-hmm. you know, and and that that goes for a lot of things, but I think also, you know, and, and you know, his 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 uh, building of characters, I think even just in Halloween was very strong. You know, you like Jamie Lee Curtis for a reason, you know. So that's another thing that we 
you know, looked at very intensely, you know, why do you like this person is, well, she's, a, she's an attractive girl. Well, no, it's a little deeper than that. You know, there's some, there's some things about her that are just very likable that you, anyone could watch it like me at my age now and say, you know what, I just like that character. So, you know, yeah, th- those things all made a huge part of it. Now, were, were there any limitations for um, this being essentially like a, a one-location shoot? I mean, I realized that there's a, a, an exterior uh, scene with Jamie where she's uh, doing some ghost hunting, but, but mainly the majority of the action does take place in, 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 in this house um, where uh, Wendy and uh, Donald live. Um, it, being in one location, did that, uh, were there any adjustments that you had to make on the fly, uh, during filming or, um, was there any sort of, um, like was everything mapped out ahead of time or? Yeah. Um, well, the, the, you know, we actually, it was another blessing that we had on this movie, which was just like unbelievable. Cause not only that, we also, sh- we also shot right before coronavirus happened. So we were very lucky. I'm, I'm talking like two weeks before everything shut down. Um, so what happened is we have a, a, a good friend of ours who, who, well, runs actually still runs a film club for like, you know, men and women, like o- over a certain age, you know, like 40, 50s, which is, which is a cool idea. Um, and one of them had a house available for us and she connected us to this, to this very nice woman and, and her mother who were willing to move out of the house for 18 days, which was like, we didn't think was going to happen. Um, and we shot all at night. So we knew they couldn't be in, (laughs) we knew they couldn't be in the bedroom, you know? Um, but yeah, we walked into this house and we were just blown away by it. It was not, I knew, I knew as a, director that I was going to have my work cut out for me because it wasn't big enough for what we wanted. And I, I knew like, once you put lights in, forget it, it's going to be crazy. So, um, I knew I had that challenge, but we looked at it and it had the aesthetic of something that reminded us of conjuring or of Amityville or like all the movies that we really like were trying to paint a picture of. And I think for the first time it was, it was something it was a way of capturing atmosphere which is what i was obsessed with trying to get right in this movie you know that it was in the house already so what we did was we we said we'll take it and we went back and and looked at the script and just kind of figured out okay where is this going to happen you know you know some things were planned to be like on a not a back porch but like you know like a back room that didn't exist so we we really went back and and thought about this woman's house and said well how can we design the action around this house and i I think that was one of the most critical, important things because it was, it's difficult in a horror movie to not make things feel like clue, you know, where you're running back and forth, like, Oh, it's the body. And you got to run into the room. You know, it's something very funny about that. So, you know, you get scared that you're having characters run back and forth too much on certain things. Um, But I think we managed to find a way to utilize the entire scope of the house and we also thought very carefully about, you know, how are we going to reveal different sections of this house, you know, and even just down to the room that Wendy's in, you know, trying to very carefully save that until, you know, that was sort of in the script, but we never want to see Wendy's room until we're like in Wendy's room by accident. You know what I mean? So even the basement, we don't really want anyone to travel through the basement at night alone until you know, Jack DeFalco's character, Charlie does. And we felt that little tricks like that would make what would be a small house into a much bigger and more terrifying experience. And that, that wound up actually being right because we don't realize on screen, you can't really tell the scope of everything. So that's kind of how I guess we achieved that. Now, was there any sort of, um, like uh, additional production design that you brought into the house um, <laughs> or into the uh, uh, yeah into it's a, the set. It's a funny thing because we basically shot as is. Um, we didn't really change like anything and uh, really at all. And there was no there was no production design team um, at all. Uh, and there was no props team. So it was, you know, it was oftentimes like me and Adam went out and bought the props. And then we had a bin, a plastic bin that we would carry around from room to room. And that had like all of the props in it, including the nine books, you know, and we couldn't get blood from one book to the other. Otherwise it'd be ruined, you know, that type of stuff. Um, so really like, you know, indie, 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 but 
that the, yeah, we didn't change much. We just planned things out and we cleaned up spaces and, you know, we never broke anything, which was good. I was always worried about that. We never got blood in, in, in any place at all, which is great because the movie looks bloodier than I think it really was, you know, like flying in tarps to protect everything. Um, but yeah, I think we, we, you know, we just tried to do those things with, with really no budget. And we liked the stuff that she had up and she was okay with us shooting it the way it was. Um, so we just kind of put in a couple stuff that was related to gags and, and it was difficult to, sometimes we had to move, you know, actually the hardest thing was taking the excess equipment and hiding it when we were not shooting in X room. That was the hardest thing. And, and that wound up, you know, that happened a hundred times throughout the course of it. You know, everything's got to move to the living room. Okay. Now we're in the dining room, you know, but we tried to plan that stuff carefully. Sometimes it was, you know, smoother than others. Oh yes. Now, um, I, I do remember um, there's, let's see, uh, as you mentioned, there's a, a lot less blood. I mean, it, it, it is bloody and that, but it, it's, it's not a, it's not a, a, a groove fest by, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I do remember that there is a, a, a bloody mirror and um, the symbol that, uh, that appears uh, before Jamie, I believe. Um, now, was that a symbol that is like an original symbol, or did that come from um, your your study uh, into Zoroastrianism? Um, yeah. Um, well, we 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 were that actually came uh, um, out of sort of uh, basically we we liked the way that really the yellow king uh, had a symbol that represented you know that that character or that you know being and that creature and that constant reference in true detective was, was very strong. And we wanted to do something like that, but we didn't, we really were very careful. Like we don't want to be like the yellow King. We don't want people to think that this is like its own thing. And that is a very specific symbol. So I, um, I think Adam, what Adam did was he took a, an envelope and he wrote just like a, you know, an envelope he opened up and wrote on it like hundreds of different symbols. And there was, there was one, which is the one we chose. And he told me I chose it. I don't even remember. This is how many different hundreds of decisions are going on. But I, I, I do remember there was one that had a sort of a cosmic vibe to it. And it, it seemed to be existing within the scope of triangles. And I thought it would sort of look interesting and it had a vertical element to it. Um, and it was something that he drew. So that was the one that we chose. And we just took a picture of that envelope and carried it around with us and just tried to match it every single time. Okay. Now, now, um, was the the mirror scene was that filmed before um, uh, uh, Wendy's automatic writing scene, or um, was it was it filmed before what? I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Wendy's automatic writing scene, where, where she's being possessed and, and she picks up the pen and paper. Um, oh, yeah. No, that was uh, actually uh, as much as I can as a director, and this, I'm not always this lucky. I try to shoot things chronologically, so pretty much all of the stuff with Wendy in the beginning was actually shot earlier than all the stuff that happens in the house later on. Okay. So yeah, pretty much all of that's in order almost, you know, more like, you know, everything kitchen day was done, you know, and then everything living room day was done. So pretty much the beginning of the movie was shot before the end or the middle. Now, now you mentioned uh, the, the triangle shape and that, um, and then that uh, ties into uh, three, the, the number three. And then you have like the, uh, the one to hear, one to speak. And and one to one to see. I'm reversing the order here. <laughs> and that, um, now was was that like a conscious decision all along to 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 keep with that uh, that trinity sort of like yeah. a motif? Or um, we definitely do throughout. And I tried. I also aim to do it in my blocking as a director uh, as much as I can work in triangles. And I, I also saw a great thing by this this guy who's really phenomenal. Uh, well, film critic, but also, you know, everything else he does. But he, every frame of painting had a, a great thing about uh, Akira Kurosawa's use of triangles and blocking. And I'm obsessed with his work. I mean, I've seen all of his movies now, you know, and, and I, I'm, I, I'm absolutely obsessed with his work and I own some of them. So I tried to work that into the blocking. Um, the way that that came about, I think, is that we just realized we were dealing with three things. And, you know, I think traditionally it was kind of shown in a triangle. So that was something that just kind of felt natural. And we just went with that. I don't even know how many discussions we had about that specifically. Um, but we liked the way 
you know, we, we liked the way it looked when it was put together and it was a simple way of dealing with three. And, you know, there's that whole thing about, you know, what is, you know, what is three in literature as well and how that can be taken to the, you know, three to the third or three to the second and how that can become satanic and all those other things that it's even back to, uh, you know, Inferno. But yeah, the, what's it called? Basically, we tried to work with that motif the whole time. And then that became part of the title sequence in the beginning. Uh, and just sort of naturally as, as, as the time went on as trying to, you know, symbolize something. And that was a little bit taken from Alien as well. We like the way the opening of Alien is. Um, where, you know, symbols, you know, don't make sense and then come into meaning. Um, it's such a great way to begin that movie where the audience is already saying, well, what does this mean? I should probably pay attention. So, you know, those types of tricks really help by saying, you know, what does that mean? And maybe I should watch and maybe I'll find out soon. Now, um, I, uh, I, I, I've got uh, just a question about the sound design, if you don't mind. Yeah. And that, um, now, specifically when when it's in relation to uh, to Charlie and how he's experiencing uh, the demon, um, I how how did you uh, come up with like the sound design for the the demon um, or for like the demon's voice and yeah, um, actually, really, Adam did because uh, because he has all these incredible tools to make music. Um, I think what we what we talked about is we wanted something to be that was like a tone. And that really came from the fact that the, the whole core of the idea, and this is how deeply we had to think about everything in this, but basically, you know, in order to define the character or to figure out what the demon is, you had to have an audio differential. There had to be an audio element that could make sense. You know, could it be tapping? It could be, it could be whatever things, but it was more clear to deal with pitch. Um, so, you know, cause you could very much tell a high pitch versus a low and, and, you know, all those different things. So, yeah, I think we just talked about, you know, what would the low pitch sound like? What would the, what would the high pitch sound like? And how could we make it seem like something that's really not, you know, that actually could create a sense of fear if the audience learned to be afraid of that. Um, you know, which is something that we very much had to, you know, break, break in the, the audience into, because a lot of people, I think even talked to us. Couple of people we showed the script to is you know low pitch hum is not scary, you know. But we're like no no don't worry we're gonna get a really great low pitch hum, <laughs> you know. So that's difficult. But um, but yeah, I think he just played me something and it was like you know what I think that is scary. That is really scary and unsettling because it's not quite you know what you would expect from something like this. You you can definitely see the disorientation in uh, in Jack's performance uh, yeah. when he's when he's hearing. Uh, when he is uh, experiencing and hearing the demon, yeah, um, and uh, that also kind of leads me in into um, another question um, about uh, the not only the sound but also the uh, the the music of the film. Mm -hmm. um, I understand that 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 Adam can compose the music as well. Um, was he taking um, like influences from from Carpenter or or yeah um, yeah um, jo um, John Carpenter's always been a you know a huge influence on him and I think that I, I think it's safe for me to say that you know here doing different interviews with him and things like that that yeah he definitely draws influence from Carpenter um, and he definitely try and definitely makes things his own uh, I, I think there's because there's so many different, you know, reference points that we had. I mean, there's even one score that I won't even really talk about where it happens in the movie, but there's, there's one score that almost sounds like it's from the Middle East or there's something about it. And if you, if you know the history of the Necronomicon and all those things, you know, it's like sort of a more of a Middle Eastern, you know, thing. It became, came from that space and everything else. And that really goes back to Lovecraft. So because we had so many shared, you know, um, uh, reference points, he played me that song, which happens at a critical point in the movie. And I was just blown away by it because I said, you know what, that there's something timeless about that music that it seems like it's, you know, that which is the whole thing we're trying to nail in this movie. It's It's been here forever and it might forever be here. And that's what that music sounds like to me. Um, and so there was something deeply unsettling about it. And yeah, he definitely draws influence from Carpenter and I think he always has. And he, he has a great way of putting music to films and it's, and it's a blessing that it's in my films because it's hard to find good composers. Number one that I think is unique 
Um, but also number two, that, that creates the suspense and tension that you would want in something like this. And it's really not, it's not an orchestra. It's not a definable violin. There's something electronic about it that really is like the way Carpenter used to, you know, score suspense. And, and it's really, it's really great. And sometimes it's very simple. And other times it's very layered and I have no idea. I never know what he's doing because I have nothing to do with the music, which is great because I can be an audience that way. And um, just uh, one last question, if you don't mind, about the about the demon yeah. itself. Um, did you have an idea of, of what the demon uh, was going to look like while you were writing the script or or as far I mean, did you make up sketches? Um, because it's a, when the demon is shown, it is very menacing. Um, and, and even in, in the parts where he's just like introduced uh, with his hand um, and, and his claw, um, I really appreciated that fact because we didn't really get to see, you know, there wasn't like the, the thing popping up behind the, the chair, you know, or something like that. But um, I, I could definitely see there were um, some sort of, it was like a like leather and 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 but then you have the middle eastern uh like influences with with the with the uh the rest of the outfit could you uh kind of explain how you came up with the idea for the look of the yeah, yeah. um well it was an interesting process uh we did sort of build a backstory for the demon and we kind of knew what was gonna what we knew what we were looking for but even in the writing of the script we just kind of said a demon and we defined the demon as best we could, but we didn't know what the shape of it could be. And I think the hardest part about defining any movie monster or anything that's really villainous like this, especially if it's demonic, is you don't want an audience to feel like they can square up with it and take it in a fight. <laughs> so that's the most pragmatic thing. If you can laugh it off the screen, it doesn't work. So we looked at a lot of different things and we definitely drew influence from Lord of the Rings, but I think Adam really drew the heaviest influence and then influenced me from Hellraiser. Um, and we looked at Hellraiser quite extensively in, in, the, in the design of it. And we looked at really trying to draw medieval um, um, references and trying to have some level of armor and, you know, having it be like a, you know, I guess I could say like a, like a, uh, having a, a religious, you know, element of it, but having that deal with blood and having it be sort of a warrior in that same space. So we had defined the character so clearly that we're like, okay, well, of course it would have like, you know, something like an armor. It would have something that looks a little bit like a shroud. It would have all these different things. So we kind of just built it slowly like that. And the plan was always to have something, at least in my mind then, at that point, after we sort of knew the story, knew what it should basically look like, and then drew out the design and planned it. Adam was really great at this because he knew, I think he knew exactly what was going to look bad or look good. So it was constantly like, no, no, let's do this like this, let's do this like that. But for me as a director, it was very exciting because I knew in the same way that Peter Jackson would or someone like Sam Raimi would, is if you can have something that's that detailed, but put it into the shadows, when the audience catches a second of it, you'll realize, whoa, there's a lot more going on here. And it's so much there that if you just have a little bit of it or a flavor of it, I think the audience appreciates it more because they don't know what the storyline is. We do. Or you know maybe nobody does really. So that 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 was that was the the game that we were also playing at the same time. So it was fun to be able to take that. <laughs> then maybe the costume designer would not feel as good about this, but it was fun to be able to take that level of detail and story and hide it. I thought that was important because I think it it, it allows people to really ask you know what is going on. You know I want to know more about this, and I, I think whenever you can pull that off in a film. It's more successful than I know way too much, and that's not very scary. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, I, I when when the demon is shown, I, I uh, when when you get a glimpse uh, of it, uh, I was like, wait a second, okay, that's okay, okay. There, there's a little bit of uh, some like you know bondage stuff going on. Uh, there's some Bedouin stuff going on, <laughs> and that. So it just it was like, wow, this thing is like pulling from so many different like reference points to make this original character. Um, and was there a, a particular reason why you um, kind of hid the, hit the face a little bit? Or was, was that going back to sort of the Middle Eastern references or? 
That's a, that's a good point. Uh, that was a, definitely an idea by Adam. And I think uh, I, I, I couldn't speak for exactly where that came from for, for him. Uh, at first I was, I was actually a little uh, not sort of against that because I love the way that, you know, we had everything designed out and that was like one of the last elements. And I love the way that, 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 that design of that, you know, that mask looked uh, which is something we got from a professional house and it was it was a great thing that they let us do and they let us shoot it and whatever we gave them great credit for it obviously bought it from them um but yeah that was something that he felt strongly about just to kind of further hide it and create a little bit more space between that and the audience and i think that reference was definitely there in his mind and i, I ultimately i thought it was a phenomenal choice because it really does create a further sense of you know where this thing's coming from not only that, but also more, even more mystery. Because to be honest with you, that mask was so good that it would scare, scare you completely if you saw it. Um, but to hide it was a very clever and subtle choice. And I think it's, it goes to the brilliance of him as a producer. And, and, and I think also definitely as a writer, but as a creator, that he also saw the logic in saying, this is so good, keep hiding it. <laughs> and I think that was smart. And it's a good way to approach a lot of different things. So I was, I was blessed by having a very smart producer this whole time who was, who was on the money and gave me that much to work with as well. And that's, um, well, thank you. Thank you uh, for your time. Um, I really appreciate you taking your time out uh, this afternoon to, to speak with us. Um, yeah. Are there any other projects coming up for you or? Yeah. Um, Adam and I are very excited to say that, you know, we're trying to sort of figure out our way through coronavirus and we've been blessed that we had a movie done, you know, or was getting, you know, edited in the middle of this because we had time. But yeah, we're, we're going to be working on a horror anthology feature film, which is, which oh, wow. is great. Yeah. So we have these four different stories. And what's amazing about them is you wouldn't have the budget to make one of these into 90 minutes, but you could make it convincingly in 20 in ish. So it's, it's this, it's this great, you know, um, mixture together of all these different elements of things that we really, really strongly want to do. Um, and it's different kinds of stories. So that's something we're working on right now. That's called how dark they pray, pray being P R E Y, which is, you know, another word game fun for the, the audience. So we're working on that. We're very excited about it. And, you know, he's, uh, He's also stepping up maybe to, uh, you know, to, to another role as well, which I guess I won't get into too much, but we wrote them together and uh, it's very exciting. Oh, cool. I, I'd love to speak with you about that when it comes out. Great. Um, I'd love to. Yeah. We could have like a, a great discussion about uh, Amicus and Hammer and all those great anthologies. Great. Um, but uh, no, uh, thank you again, Jameson. Um, I, 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 I know usually these are about like 20 or 30 minutes, but there was like so much stuff to, to no, touch I'm on in, in this film. It. You know, I'll tell you, uh, um, Christopher, what's nice about this is that it's nice to have these conversations with people because, you know, in a lot of ways, it seems, you know, we, we had a great opening weekend, uh, a bunch of people through the various platforms. It seems like about 100,000 people watched it, which is like wild this opening yep. weekend. So it seems like people are talking about it and they seem to be enjoying it. And I think it's also, it's probably now aided by the pandemic because there's not a lot coming out. Um, I don't know, you know, it's crazy times for everybody, but it is nice to see, you know, even from their homes, people are, you know, responding to this thing. And, you know, I, I hope that, you know, some people have been calling for a sequel. <laughs> it's way too early to, to talk about that. I don't know if that's, I don't even know if there's a story there, but um, but you know, I think it was done from a pure place of just loving, you know, films. And I think hopefully that's what, you know, uh, people, you know, notice or recognize in it. And I appreciate you, you know, having us on and talking about it. Oh, certainly. And, and, um, I, I do think there is an opportunity for a sequel, but, uh, but I also, uh, appreciate the fact that, um, it, it could be a standalone as well and that, um, hey, yeah, but, you. uh, I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna venture any further into that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, uh, thank you uh, very much, and um, uh, it, it was great speaking with you. I, I, I hope I'm not keeping you from anything else. No, it's it, the perfect timing. This is a great time to do this with you. So yeah, no, happy to talk, and I'm I'm happy to talk anytime. I mean, if you want to come back, and I also can bring on Adam or or whatever. I mean, if you want to have us come back and speak, I mean they're still pushing this thing out there, which is great. I mean, we're, we're in a very blessed position with terror films. Uh, these guys really care about this movie. So they have, you know, they have a PR firm, which is different for us. So, you know, um, happy to speak about it anytime and just get the word out there and, you know, get people to see it and hopefully enjoy it or tell friends about it. 
Okay, that yeah, that's great. Uh, maybe we can uh, get something set up. I'll, I'll speak to Jason about it. Great. So cool. Well, um, thank you again. Thank you so much. Have a have a nice evening. You too. All right. The movie is called No Fear. It is out now on Tubi, Amazon Prime, Kings of Horror, and Watch Movies Now. So there is uh, there is that. And thanks to Christopher Hoffman for uh, for doing that interview. I think he did fairly well. And speaking of knowing fear and evil, I just finished. The Devil You Know, it's an anthology of short stories featuring Old Scratch himself, edited by R.J. Carter. This is from Critical Blast Publishing. I will be putting an, a, uh, a review out at some point in the very near future, and Mrs. Boss has already handed me the card for the school closings list, so we'll be working on that as well. Uh, you can find us over on all the socials, sign up for our newsletter, Send us an email with your feedback or leave us a comment. Don't forget, on your way out, hit the thumbs up button. And feel free to share this or anything else that we do that you happen to like. Tonight, we've got a brand new Salacious Crumbs with all the latest news in the Star Wars universe. Uh, I will be filling in for McKenna once again tonight. Uh, so you've got my ugly mug tonight. And then on Thursday, we've got a brand new Ranker Pit with discussions of the Star Wars news. And on Saturday, of course, the week's headlines and Good Morning Multiverse. And a brand new discussion of horror, this time from Canada, on a new Foreign Bodies. So we want you to join us for all of those things. In the meantime, if you're not subscribed, we do invite you to do that. Have your notifications turned on because we are putting uh, programming out on a regular basis. We also want you to sign up over on our Twitch channel and uh, and connect with us over there so we can start our watch parties soon. That's going to do it for us today. Thanks very much for joining us live from the bunker here. Don't forget, if you don't stand for something... You will fall for anything, and as always, there are four lights. Back tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio, copyright 2021, by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.